Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I am joined today by Christian John Lillis, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Peggy Lillis Foundation. Now, if you've never heard of the Peggy Lillis Foundation, their mission is to build a nationwide Clostridium difficile awareness movement by educating the public, empowering advocates, and shaping policy. And they have a vision where they see a world where C. diff is a rare, treatable, and survivable illness. And so the work of this foundation is really incredible, and Christian is, is an awesome person. I'm super excited to talk to him today. Christian, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, in the time that we've been doing this work, uh, I've become increasingly aware of like the key role that infectious disease pharmacists play in helping us to prevent and treat C. diff and other infections. And so I'm like a big fan of the Society of Infectious Disease Pharmacists and really excited to be with you. Oh, well, thank you. We are a big fan of you. And y'all, I recently saw Christian speak at the World Antimicrobial Resistance Congress, which was held in Washington, D.C. in November. So about a month ago, I think we met. Um, and Christian got on stage with another patient advocate um, who is the sepsis survivor and told his story about his mother who um, unfortunately passed away from C. diff. And I'm going to let Christian tell that compelling story in a minute. But um, I mean, thank you so much for that compliment. But really, you guys are why we do what we do every day as stewardship pharmacists. And thanks for reminding us why it's so important to teach and advocate and ensure that we are using antimicrobials appropriately, really in, in every space. And so, Christian, do you mind sharing with us your mother's story and how that led to the creation of the foundation? Absolutely, Erin. So, um, so my mother, uh, Peggy Lillis, was a kindergarten teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Um, she was a single mom for most of mine and my brother's lives. Uh, she uh, was one of nine siblings from a really large Irish Catholic family uh, in uh, that grew up also in Brooklyn, New York. And so, um, you know, my mother was just one of the best people I've ever known, maybe the best pe person I've ever known. Um, and so um, I really like to talk about kind of who she was a bit so people understand what the loss was like. And so, you know, my mom went from being a single mom on welfare after she slept with my father um, to putting herself through college, to helping me go to college, to becoming a kindergarten teacher. Um, and throughout that, she was just a really popular and important member of our larger community and neighborhood that we grew up in. And, you know, she was really beloved, um, not just by parents and students, but by people that she used to like waitress, um, you know, wait, wait tables and they would see her at the diner when she was going to school. And um, she was just a really intensely kind, uh, and caring person, but also somebody who would really advocate for the people in her life and ensure that, you know, they had what they needed. Um, you know, one example is that my brother is dyslexic. And um, if you can imagine, like, back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, before there was a lot of even the special needs stuff that they have in public schools now, like, my mother had to really advocate for my brother to get the the services that he needed to be successful in school um 
And, you know, she was doing that as like a 26 year old uh, high school dropout (laughs) uh, (laughs) who would like then go get her GED and then go on to college. And so um, part of my mother's story and part of who she was, was an inspiration that, you know, anyone anywhere can decide to be an advocate for the people they care about and for things that they care about. Um, And so in April of 2010, my mother went to her longtime dentist, uh, who'd also been mine and my brother's dentist, and she had a root canal, um, and there was um, sort of the signs of perhaps the beginning of an abscess, and so he prescribed her a course of clindamycin, and, um, you know, she took the clindamycin, thought nothing of it. This was, like, on a Monday. Um the following, that Thursday, uh, she was going to school at night for her to finish her master's degree. Um, she just felt really terrible during her class. She went home. Um, she and my brother uh, owned a house together along with his wife. And she went home and she felt terrible. And so she just went to bed. And she was awoken in the middle of the night with really like urgent and profuse diarrhea. And um, she, because she taught kindergarten, she assumed that she just caught something from one of the kids and didn't really think much of it. Like maybe I ate something, maybe one of the kids, you know, I got picked up something from one of the kids. Um, So she took Friday off. Um, When it persisted through Saturday, she called her primary care doctor, um, never linking the clindamycin, which she continued to take to the the diarrhea, Um, like not associating the two. And so her doctor, uh, without seeing her, which is a sort of important part of the story, um, prescribed her a prescription strength anti-diarrheal. And so she began to take that. And uh, my brother and his wife, um, you know, would check in on her. They were bringing her fluids. They were bringing her toast, you know, chicken soup, like trying to see like what she could hold down, um, what would sort of stay inside her. Um, And again, you know, everyone's just thinking that she's caught a bug. Um, And so finally that Monday, I was beginning to become concerned because I'm a bit more of a worry wart. And I talked to her on the phone and I said, you know, I'm concerned, like, you've been sick for four days and, you know, maybe we need to, like, go to the doctor, you know, go to the hospital or something. And she said, well, I have a GI appointment tomorrow um, that my primary care doctor set up. So you know, they're going to look at it and see what's going on. And so I agreed to take her uh, to the GI appointment. When I arrived at my mother's house, like, she's totally herself, but she's incredibly fatigued. Um, She looks very, very pale. Um, And so I tell her, and what I'm worried about at this point is I'm thinking that she's dehydrated. And because of you know, work in my previous life before I did this, like, I understand, like, how dangerous dehydration can be. And so I said to her, I don't know if it makes sense to keep this GI appointment. Maybe we should just go to the ER because you seem really dehydrated and they're not going to be able to do anything for you at a doctor's office. Like, they're going to want you to go to the ER and get fluids. So she agreed. And we, um, we talked about what hospital to go to. We decided to go to this small hospital um, very close to her house. And I said to her, you know, do you want to me to drive you or do you want to call an ambulance? Like, do you feel like you can move around? And um, 
And as I said, you know, she was like a, a kind of funny, wisecracking person. And so she said, ah, call an ambulance. I have great insurance. They'll pay for it. Um, so I called an ambulance and the ambulance arrived and they went up to her room. And this is the beginning of me thinking that something is is much is, is more wrong than we initially thought. So they take her vitals and her blood pressure is 70 over 40. And for people who are not acquainted with that, uh, that is very, very low. That is dangerously low. Yeah, that's and not so, good. That's not yeah. good. So so the so the EMTs that arrived, they call for a different ambulance, one that has life support equipment. Um fearing that she could, her heart could stop beating because her pressure is so low or, um, so now I'm kicking myself. Um, I'm thinking, God, we should have taken her to the hospital sooner. Um, but again, all I'm worried about is dehydration. And so finally they get us to the hospital. Um, they start, you know, evaluating her, asking her what's been going on. She tells them, you know, she's been taking clindamycin. She's been taking this other thing for the anti-diarrheal. And um, as I mentioned, we come from a big family. And so my mother's older sister is an oncology nurse. And so I had called her and said, you know, I'm taking mom to the hospital. I think she's super dehydrated. Um, do you want to come meet us? Um, just because it's always better to have like another set of ears, another person to advocate, especially somebody who understands uh, the healthcare, like how a healthcare facility operates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so she meets me there and I'd say about 30 or 45 minutes after we get there, the ER attending, their infectious disease attending and a surgeon asked to speak to us privately, uh, not with my mom. And they tell us that our mother um, has a life-threatening infection, that her white cell count is over 40,000, and that they believe that it is being caused by a bacteria called Clostridium difficile, uh, and that she has a condition called toxic megacolon. Now, I'm somebody who considered myself pretty savvy when it came to healthcare, and I had never heard of C. diff. And my aunt, who, as I said, is an oncology nurse, she looked at the doctors and said, how could my sister have C. diff? She's 56 years old. And I don't know the last time she was in a hospital. Like, how could this have happened? Right. Like that shock of it kind of coming from the community. and Right. And, you know, in 2010, we had a lot less knowledge about uh, community acquired C. diff. And, and we can talk more about that later. But um, so... They want to do a bunch more tests. They're trying to start a central line to give her fluids and give her antibiotics. It's very difficult to get a central line in somebody who's profoundly dehydrated. Um, and so the next, you know, the next few hours are kind of a blur of us talking to the, the doctors, of them running various tests. Um, and at a certain point, they come to us and they say, um, because your mom is basically going into septic shock, her kidneys are failing, um, we need one of you to elect to be her healthcare proxy. And we agreed that I would do it being the oldest. Um, and like another thing to, to know about my mom is that as this is all sort of un, uh, unfolding, um, people are arriving at the hospital <laughs> to see her. Um, and by like the time, like late in the afternoon, like there must've been like 40 people, 
um, you know, her siblings, their spouses, my cousins, girlfriends of hers, teachers she worked with. Because, um, you know, everyone's like, why is she in the hospital? What's going on? What's wrong? Um, and so as evening approaches, they tell us that they want to do a CAT scan to and a colonoscopy to see whether or not the toxic megacolon has kind of has kind of like you know obstructed her her colon, um, or you know what else is going on to sort of appropriately treat her, right? And um, and in order to do that, because she is um, she is sort of borderline sepsi- septic, they want to intubate her, and so we agree to that. Um, they take her in for those, you know, in for the CAT scan, in for the colonoscopy. And they come to us when all that is, is said and done. And they say, basically, um, that our mother was the sickest person in the hospital. And they wanted to do everything they could. And they were contacting colleagues of theirs at academic medical centers, um, you know, mentors of theirs, because they have not seen such a severe C. diff case in a woman her age. And they, what they want to do is treat her um, with vancomycin overnight with IV immunoglobin. Um, they were giving it through the central line. They were also giving her vancomycin enemas. And what they were hoping is that if they could arrest the sepsis, then in the morning we could revisit what the next steps would be perhaps with her being part of that conversation. Um, But they said, if she does not improve overnight, then they would want to do a colectomy uh, to remove her colon in the morning in what they called an attempt to save her life. And, you know, to go from having somebody that you think just has dehydration from a stomach bug to your mother's life is in danger um, is a lot to process in 12 hours. Right, um, I can't even imagine. And so we went back to, to my brother's house. Um, the sort of agreed plan was that uh, the doctors would, the surgeon in particular would check in overnight with the ICU attending. And if she did not improve in terms of her vitals and her, her you know, white cell count and everything, that they would want to move quickly in the morning to remove her colon hoping that removing the sort of primary source of, of toxicity and infection would let her body rebound. <clears throat> so as you can imagine, we didn't sleep much that night. Um, we had a lot of visitors at my brother's house. We had a lot of phone calls and texts. Um, and finally, um, my husband and I uh, like probably fell asleep at one or two in the morning and we were woken at 6.15 by the surgeon calling, saying that he was driving in from his home in Long Island, that my mother had not improved overnight, and that they wanted us to meet him at the hospital in order to uh, agree to the surgery, to consent to the surgery. So we do that. We go to the, to the hospital. We meet him. Um, you know, they sort of tell us that there's a significant danger that she might not make it, uh, you know, that she might die during surgery because she's very unstable, um, but that she will certainly die without the surgery. Um, And so, you know, we agree to it. 
And they took her in around 10 and by like 11.30 she was out and and the, the surgeon and the other doctors were actually really pleased. Like she did a lot better than they thought she was going to do. And so from early morning, from like the, after the surgery for the next couple of hours, like her vital signs started to improve. She seemed to be stabilizing. Um, I mean, at this point, I have to tell you, there was probably like 50 people at the hospital. I can only um, imagine. Yeah. You know, her like taking turns going in and visiting her, um, you know, in the ICU, you know, you only can go in two at a time. And so we were like literally taking like 10 minute breaks and uh, 10 minute slots. And so, you know, we were, you know, we were all just going in her and in there and telling her, you know, you're very strong. You're the toughest lady we know. You can beat this. Um, you know, you've, beaten so many other things and accomplished so much in your life like this you know this isn't gonna take you out and um and we ended up like going home to have a little lunch and coming back and I would say around 4 30 in the afternoon um the ICU attending and the ID attending come to us and they say um that despite their best efforts the sepsis is continuing to progress um, that her blood is not oxygenating properly and um, they're doing everything they can, but it's not looking good. So we continue taking turns going in and visiting with her, you know, urging her to fight. She's, you know, she's unconscious, she's intubated. Um, and at some point around 6.30, my aunts, two of her sisters come out of the room and they say that the the doctor had asked them to step out so that they could help, you know, do something for mom. I, I don't know if they were going to like do another enema or what. Um, but um, about 20 minutes later, the ICU attending comes into the, the waiting room and he tells us that Peggy has passed and that they tried to revive her three times, um, but nothing worked and, and she was gone. Christian, I'm so sorry. That's such a powerful story. And I'm sure at this point you've, you've told it how many times over the years and it, it doesn't ever get any easier. Um, I mean, I cry less. <laughs> <laughs> you did great. Um, <laughs> I'd be sobbing right now. You did great. So, um, man, that is such a powerful story. And I, I can't, and none of us can imagine what that's like unless you're there. And, um, you know, I think antibiotic resistance impacts all of us in a different way, but that what you guys do and being able to tell that story is so amazing because it reminds us again, why we all do what we do. And C. diff, like a few things that you said stood out to me. So first, not even knowing what C. diff is, and that's so common. I mean, that's why, honestly, why would you know, right? Because there isn't, we don't do a very good job of educating the public yet until honestly your foundation and other efforts were created and the huge call to arms over antimicrobial resistance really kicked up in 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, so in 2010, this wasn't a conversation we were having around the dinner table. And I don't know very many people without a healthcare professional in their family that would sit at the dinner table in 2010 and say, oh yeah, you have Clostridium difficile infection. Don't take that over-the-counter antidiarrheal. Um, and no, so absolutely not. I mean, and you know, my, my aunt having, you know, seen C. diff in her oncology patients, um, just had never seen it in a young person who, you know, a relatively young person, a middle-aged person, um, 
Right. And the you know, other who wasn't being treated. Yeah, exactly. I think, and the other thing really that I'm not sure we appreciate even now, I think we still are educating students and residents and our cell, our colleagues that this really can happen after just a few doses of clindamycin or um, any other, you know, antibiotic that is likely to cause C. difficile infection. Um, I had a student when I was at the University of Wisconsin who took one dose of Clinda for dental, a prophylaxis procedure. She had several other conditions and um, penicillin allergy and whatnot. We can talk about penicillin allergies later. Um, but she took one dose and got C. diff and she had a misrotation for a week. Um, and then, you know, the, it's just, it's a lot. And we can talk about survivorship as well and people who are C. diff survivors and the, you know, certain things that may be associated with that and the stigma that may be associated with that. And so it's, um, it's significant. In fact, the 2019 CDC antimicrobial resistance threats report was just released a couple weeks ago, and they updated facts and figures from that we first saw about six years ago. They've updated them, and in fact, now 223,900 cases of C. diff occurred in hospitalized patients in 2017, and of that, at least 12,800 died. So that these are very significant numbers, and what are your kind of thoughts on this report? So we really admire, um, you know, our friends at the Centers for Disease Control, um, in particular, uh, the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. We think that they have done an incredible job uh, in the past seven years. I, I first went uh, and met with them in 2012 with a bunch of other patient advocates, and I think they've done a really um, excellent job of engaging patients. I mean, of all the federal agencies that are involved in healthcare, they're definitely leading on that front. Um, and so, that said, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it. I think it's good to know that we have made some progress, as the report shows, in reducing hospital acquired uh, and hospital onset C diff, and that is, you know, in large part, I think, due to the implementation of antibiotic stewardship programs, you know, to the good work of uh, pharmacists uh, like yourself, but also infectious disease doctors, hospitalists, um, you know, everybody's sort of involved in, you know, getting what we're all trying to achieve, which is, you know, the right drug for the right duration, for the right patient, for the right infection at the right time. Um, and that has, you know, in, in many places significantly reduced the number of C. diff cases that they're having um, as a sort of facility or, ho or hospital onset. Unfortunately, uh, what this report did not include was an update to community acquired C. diff. And so while we have seen a reduction in cases that are hospital onset, we are seeing an increase in community acquired C. diff. And so what what we don't really know yet is, is the growth in, in community-acquired C. diff actually make offsetting the gains we're making at the hospital <laughs> onset level? Um, and something also to say about like the 12,800 um, deaths. So, um, so that is things that are directly attributable to C. diff, um, but C. diff so often strikes people who are uh, in the hospital and vulnerable or even at home and vulnerable because they're immune suppressed, they're recovering from cancer, um, they have something else that's going on. And so many times when that person passes away during an active C. diff infection, their cause of death will not be noted as being C. diff. It'll be cancer. Um, it'll be something else. And so depending on who fills out the death certificate, it may say that it was a contributing factor um, 
And in the previous threats report, the CDC did account for an additional uh, 15,000 deaths per year that were thought to, you know, where C. diff was one of the factors that led to the death. And so we're really looking at, you know, somewhere between 28 to 30,000 deaths a year um, due to C. diff. Yeah, that's a great point that these numbers are, while they're updated in the best data we have, likely underrepresented. We we kind of skipped ahead a little bit, though. So, I mean, your mother's yes. story, <laughs> we have like, wait, we, have we explained what your foundation is yet? Probably not. Um, <laughs> we should We should start there. So, I mean, your mother's story is compelling and amazing, and thank you for sharing it. Um, but it, So it motivated you to get knowledge of Clostridium difficile infection out into the world and to create this foundation in her name and in her honor. And you guys do absolutely amazing advocacy work. So can you explain to our audience a little bit about how you created the foundation and, and some of the work you've been doing um, really for the past almost 10 years? Yeah, so one of the things that that jumped out at us, there were really two factors that inspired, well, three factors that inspired us to, to start Peggy Lillis Foundation. Um, so the first is that my mother was this really beloved person um, in our community. And when we had her 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 wake and her funeral, um, more than 500 people came to her, her funeral. Oh my goodness. Um, oh. So... So the first thing was we had this sense of like, there were so many people, students, coworkers, uh, colleagues, like just all of her friends. You know, I, I'm the oldest of 19 uh, grandchildren or 19 first cousins. Um, and my mom, I think she had 12 godchildren, both related to her and, and friends of hers. And so um, there was a sense that like, this was such a profound loss, not just for us, but for this sort of larger community. Um, and then the other part of it is that, you know, if our mother had been hit by a car, we would have been like, that was bad luck. Maybe the person did something wrong, or maybe it was just an accident, but we would have understood it. Um, and instead, we lost our mother to this thing that we'd never heard of. And I'm a problem solver. And so I immediately wanted to understand more and more what happened to our mother. And as I looked more and more into C. diff, there were two things that I noted. The first was just how many people this was killing, right? Um, and, you know, at that point, it was neck and neck with HIV. Uh, and so the idea that something is killing as many people as HIV, and I've never heard of it. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy, exactly. Yeah. Um, and why is that? Um, so, so there was a sense of like, there's a real dearth of information. And we also felt like in looking back at sort of the series of events that led to what happened to my mom passing, like, had we heard of this disease? Had we known that, as you said earlier, like one dose of certain kinds of broad spectrum antibiotics can make you vulnerable to a C. diff infection? we would have, she could have gotten treated earlier. You know, there's a whole, there's a the whole bunch of but fours, right? Right. Um, I mean, I mean, there's a huge difference in out picking up an outpatient prescription and being like, you know, call if you have diarrhea and someone like your mom who, you know, is used to taking care of other people and who is around kids and who is used to this. And is like, I mean, that's all of us, right? We're not going to like let a little, little illness get us down. Um, so we don't call, right? And no, yeah. none of us would, but then the difference in that, are we even framing this message appropriately to our patients, which I think is something your foundation advocates for. I mean, there's a, big yes. <laughs> there, there's a big difference in being counseled and told you could have this life-threatening fulminant illness of if you have diarrhea, it is a big deal and you need to call 
that is, I think, I mean, something we, we all need to work on. I think definitely, I have even thought about this working. I work mostly in the inpatient sector and my next big, like, I really wanted to take this on and my health system is discharge antibiotics because I think we do a good job while patients are inpatient and then they get sent home and we have like no idea what their outpatient prescription records look like because we're not looking at that. And so kind of a big you know, and, and that's another area. Um, and I, I do want to get to that, to that third factor. Um, in terms of like why we started Peggy Lilith Nation, which is, you know, my mother was an educator. And as I mentioned earlier, she was an advocate. Um, and my professional background before doing this is that I was a fundraiser for nonprofits and I worked primarily in healthcare. Um, I worked at NYU Medical Center for several years. And then I also worked in LGBTQ rights and advocacy. And so my mother had kind of, you know, raised us to be the kind of men that stick up for people that can't stick up for themselves, to um, to take on, um, you know, people who are not being responsive to people who are weaker than them. And so, so for us, it was the combination of like who our mother was and what her legacy in our lives was. The fact that like this was in our perception, like, if not a completely solvable problem, then something that could be significantly improved. Um, and also a sense, you know, with all due respect to the work that's been done over the past nine years, but like at that moment, it really felt like the healthcare uh, industry was just letting this happen. If that, you know, that yeah. really oh. there was very little attention paid to it. And I think part of that, Erin, is that um, if you look at the demographics of C. diff, to this day, uh, even though community acquired and younger people are getting it, and we need to be, we need to be very cognizant of that, um, but the, main, the people who primarily pass from it are elderly people. And my sense is that because it was happening to elderly people and we're not a culture that values elderly people, that it was kind of permitted to keep going until it started affecting people like my mother. Um, and so to us, like, that just got our hackles up. <laughs> and then, like, the right. sense of, like, injustice of, like, you know, my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, who we lost a couple of years ago, she lived to be 93. My husband's grandmother lived to be 98. <clears throat> and despite that, you know, there could be a mentality among some healthcare workers, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, that an elderly person gets an infection, they pass away, and it's, oh, well, it was their time. Well, not if that infection's preventable, it's not their time. Right. I think even, <laughs> yeah. I think preventable and treatable, and I don't, I don't know, but I, I do think, so I was an undergrad in 2010, and I was a pre-pharmacy biomedical sciences major, and I'm honestly not sure I could speak intelligently about Clostridium difficile at that time. It wasn't until I progressed through pharmacy school that I started to understand it. And even then, I mean, we had metronidazole at the time that was guideline recommended first line therapy and it was cheap and it was oral and you could get it outpatient. Same with oral Vanco, maybe a little more expensive, but oral outpatient therapies. I mean, we had two treatment options and then, I mean, Fidaxomycin came to the market as well. Um, and also oral, also obtainable outpatient. And so we really didn't put the like severity on it that it deserves. And the fact of the matter is even when we treat C. diff, one in four patients recur. One in four, 25% of patients get the infection again and again, and it's horrendously morbid and has, as we know, significant mortality. And yeah, for whatever reason, I think we 
for a long time and, and still need to fight the fight that we think of it as like an adverse event from an antibiotic. And really it's a life threatening infection that completely changes the course of people's lives, even for survivors. Um, and, and it does. And I want to, um, <clears throat> you know, so like our mother passed away, but we have over the past nine and a half years, and, you know, we can talk a little bit more about our, our programs, but we've gotten to know so many people, you know, who have who have had that recurrent C. diff and who have, you know, gone through really the hell of getting treated, feeling well for two or three weeks, having it come back, um, missing work, um, developing all kinds of uh, sort of mental and emotional um, anxieties, a fear of, of giving it to their family members, fear of, um, you know, of pooping their pants in public. I mean, you know, a whole host of of things that um, that are really underappreciated when it comes to this disease. And that doesn't even get into the enormous and totally preventable costs to the entire system, which are estimated at something like $8 billion a year. Um, right. And of course, we want everyone with CDF to be treated, but if it's a preventable infection, like, couldn't we spend that $8 billion in a different, better way? <laughs> Right. You know, if we weren't I mean, treating a preventable infection. Right. I hear you. Um, this is, I want to get, I want you to spend at least a few minutes talking to our audience about, so we discussed why you developed the foundation. I want you to get into some of your current initiatives, some things you've done this year, um, and how other than connecting with survivors, which is amazing. Um, and you can read those survivor stories online for people who are listening. Um, the website is peggyfoundation.org. Um, and so even if you guys want to pull that website up while you're following along, you can see survivorship stories, there's advocacy tabs and ways you can get involved. Um, but we're going to have Christian kind of walk through some of the main things of the foundation. Um, but I want to quick uh, give, I relate to this somewhat. I mean, obviously it's in no way the same thing, but in that, like appreciating what patients go through kind of sense. My grandfather was actually hospitalized earlier this year with Acinetobacter bacteremia that really came out of nowhere. And thank God he lives alone, but thank God my parents happened to be visiting him at the end of September. And so my, 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 they woke up one morning and my dad saw my grandpa sitting on the couch and was just like, he looks horrible. He was shaking. My dad also thought he was dehydrated, like terrible, called an ambulance. Initially, they thought it was just AFib. And then it turns out he has gram negative rods in his blood. We put him on cefepime. He doesn't get better overnight. And I watch him I, and I take care of these patients all the time. And I went to the hospital and I'm like watching my grandfather like crash and burn. And then we got an organism identification and it turned out it was Acinetobacter. And it's like, what in the, my grandfather hadn't been in the hospital in over a year, hadn't taken antibiotics in two years. Yes, he's 86, but like, where did this come from? You know, you don't, you think of those infections as associated with only hospitalized people, et cetera. And it was terrifying because I most, I, at the University of Pittsburgh, all the Acinetobacter I see isn't susceptible to anything. And I'm like, am I really going to put my grandfather on polymyxin right now? Is that where, does he want to live on dialysis potentially? Like, and making those decisions in that incredibly short time span, as you discussed, and like, it goes from zero to a million and your whole family's around you. And I just like, will never, I like just gain, and I, I forgot everything I knew about infectious diseases too, right? In that moment, you're like, what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what antibiotics are. <laughs> like, I just want to save my grandfather. And then, I mean, fortunately, he had an isolate that was susceptible to ampicillin selectium, and that's what we definitively treated him with. And like, 
thank I'm thankful for that every single day, but it like reminded me of like two things. Like if, if he didn't have an antibiotic that worked, he would have died. And second, even though he survived the morbidity of that. And usually I, in a hospital, I, you know, I round on patients, I do stewardship, I treat them, but when they're on their definitive therapy with a course of treatment and I've gone to visit them and kind of signed off, like I don't follow them for the next month or two months when they go home or go to rehab. And it took my grandfather probably over a month to, to feel back to, I don't even know if he's back to baseline, but like have somewhat normal strength again, like the morbidity of sepsis to a survivor is just now I have this whole new appreciation for that. And, and again, back to the first point is like, thank God there was an antibiotic that worked. And then, but we live in a world where sometimes there's not. Um, and that's just, that's just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Two of the organizations that we work with uh, quite closely is the Sepsis Alliance and the Rory Staunton Foundation. Um, both of which were founded by the parents, parents who lost, uh, one was an adult child, the sepsis alliance, Aaron Flatley, um, who was in nursing school, uh, passed away from uh, sepsis. And then Rory Staunton was a, a 12-year-old boy here in New York um, who died from an unrecognized infection that that blossomed to sepsis. And um, <clears throat> and both the, the stories of those families uh, who also hadn't, you know, didn't know of this thing, hadn't heard of it, completely unprepared to, to deal with it, um, you know, really resonate for us. And, you know, at the end of the day, like C. diff was the bacteria that, that um, killed our mother, but what she ultimately died from was sepsis. And, you know, at the time when my mom was sick, or before my mom was sick, I would have told you that I knew what sepsis was because I like watched ER and Grey's Anatomy. Um, and the thing that a lot of, I think, lay people don't realize is like what gets dramatized in medical dramas and stuff like is really not what certain diseases look like in person. Um, and, you know, you can be in septic shock and you can be talking, you can be walking. Um, and then, as you said, like, when you survive such a profound insult to your body as sepsis, um, or if you have, you know, a seed that requires you to have your colon removed, like these are all um, physical lifelong injuries. And then also um, there are a lot of people that end up with like post-traumatic stress disorder, um, agoraphobia, like various sort of mental and emotional things uh, that frankly our healthcare system does not, uh, is not set up to care for those people um, once they've survived. You know, like, like we can keep their body alive, but like then they're often on their own. Right. Um, yeah, you're so right. Um, and, it, and I was going to say, and that leads us into why we started the foundation. Yeah. So I'm uh, like, on that note, <laughs> so we're like, man, this is a lot of sadness, um, which I mean, it, it's important to tell these stories and to frame this concept and to think about this because I, you know, we just, we just don't that that frequently, but you guys are doing amazing things. I've read a ton of your press releases. Um, and so can you kind of walk us through, you know, the work of the foundation, some of your powerful and proudest moments and the kind of key things that you guys are focusing on to, to raise this awareness and to help patients, patients, families, survivors, general people in the community, healthcare professionals to really grasp the importance of this, especially around C. diff. Yeah. So, so when we first kicked off, like we really just wanted to start raising awareness. Um, and so for the first two or three years, that was what we focused on, like getting information out there, trying to get some more press coverage of this disease, um, 
sort of, you know, developing a website that had information that was up to date and current, but that was also accessible to the average person. Because um, one of the things that we noticed as we were researching CDF. Uh, in the aftermath of our mom's passing was that a lot of the information that was out there was really written for people like you <laughs> and not people like me. Like, you know, the more up-to-date current stuff was often journal articles, you know, uh, heavy on acronyms, heavy on like needing a real uh, in-depth understanding of, of medicine to really be able to appreciate and understand. And so uh, initially our goal was to like make that stuff accessible, um, get it out there. And what we began to learn over the course of the first few years was that awareness wasn't going to be enough. And so starting in 2014, we, you know, we moved to a newer mission, which is still our current mission, which is to educate the public, empower advocates, and shape policy. And what that looks like in our day-to-day -day work is doing even things like this podcast, where we're doing every effort to kind of get the word out there, um, talk to people who have not had CDF or who might have misconceptions about CDF if they're healthcare workers. Um, and that can be everything from having those stories on our website. Um, there's also links on our website to our YouTube channel where we have a lot of great videos of, of patients and caregivers talking about their CDF experience or if they lost a love and what that was like. Um, and I think that in particular for uh, for this audience, like those can be really powerful teaching tools because they're anywhere from like a minute to three or four minutes long. And so you can include them in a presentation um, and things like that. So, so there's the education part of it um, that also includes uh, things like having advocates who go and present um, to healthcare worker committee, uh, like quality improvement organization meetings. Um, and then again, like trying to get things out on the press and even things like social media. So we do that whole part of it. And then in order to do that, what we what we realized we had to do was to sort of empower and teach and strengthen the people who, you know, did not have my professional background, let's say. So someone who is a stay-at-home parent, someone who, um, you know, works as a medical biller, somebody who is a hairdresser, you know, who CDF either happened to them or happened to a loved one. But prior to that, they had no sort of intentions of like talking to a reporter or lobbying on Capitol Hill or, you know, or presenting at grand rounds at a hospital like they, you know, but so what we do a lot with in terms of empowering uh, advocates is we train them and provide them with tools and resources to be able to be strong advocates and not just tell their story, um, but help them to tell their story in the best way possible. And then also have them understand sort of the complexities of what we're dealing with, with the systemic issues in dealing with CDF so that they can um, be powerful partners to um, professional associations, to members of Congress, to um, industry groups that are working on this issue. Um, and so taking all of that into account brings us to the sort of the third part of our mission, which is to shape policy. Um, and so we use that very broadly. Um, so some of the examples are, I was one of, uh, I was part of the National Quality Forum um, committee that helped write the um, antibiotic stewardship playbook for hospitals. And so my role in that group of like 30 people was to point out like 
where they where they weren't thinking through what the ramifications for a patient, think through like how could people in hospitals who are doing stewardship programs and who want to promote them, like how they could bring patients in as part of that process as a partner instead of um, somebody who uh, is on the outside looking in. Um, and then uh, and the other part of it is a more typical thing that people think of as policy, which is, you know, um, legislation um, for many years, I'd say since 2014, um, we have been annually working in partnership with the Infectious Disease Society of America, Shea, the Pew Charitable Trust, um, where we work on appropriations. And so we work with our advocates to get them to go to their Congress people, either in person or, um, or you know, by telephone or, or email, to advocate for either continuing or more robust funding for the sort of key um, government agencies that are working on controlling C. diff and antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, and we've been pretty successful in that. And I think that having, um, you know, having a group of people who go in, it's like we have the ID docs, we have the pharmacists, we have the agriculture people, we have patient voices, patient advocates, all going to Congress and saying, we all agree that this is what we need, um, is a really powerful way to do it because it's not agriculture asking for this amount, ID docs asking for that amount, patients yelling that no one's listening to them. <laughs> and so it's actually, I think, a really great model. And, and Pew um, and IDSA and Shea have kind of been at the forefront of that model. Um, and so those are kind of like, those are like the basic things that we work on. Um, and then um, what that looks like in terms of the year, and we can talk about some of the things that we're, we're proudest of. And so um, in 2015, we started, um, we held our first uh, national CDF advocacy summit. And so the people that we'd been talking to since 2010, the ones that really wanted to be involved, but, you know, who were uncertain of where to go or how to start. Um, we invited them at that point to New York. It's since moved to DC. And we brought in experts um, and you know basically taught them like the latest information about C. diff, the latest information about antibiotic stewardship and resistance. And then the other part of it was doing hands-on training for like, how do you tell your story in three minutes, right? Like if you're going to meet with a congressperson, right, you, like, you can't tell them the hour-long version of what happened to you. Like you right. have to get you in gotta, there. You got to yeah. nail down that elevator speech for sure. Yeah, you do. Um, and it doesn't mean that like not, and, and part of it is like every part of your story is important, but like you have to make an impact in a really short period of time, right? right? Yeah. No, actually we're here of, to get it done. <laughs> recently. So I work with Ryan Shields and he's, he's brilliant. And uh, recently I was giving a talk and he was like, Aaron, less content, more context. And I was like, it's like the most impactful four words of my life. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what we all need. Like less stuff, more meaning. Um, so how you really, <laughs> how you really get your point of right. I was like, those are, thank you. Where's this been all my life? But that's been my new kind of mantra, even with these podcasts, how can we, you know, really put it into context for people? What's the problem? What can we do about it? Um, and, so. and also I think part of that challenge um and you know like you're you're sort of admitting it because like you know you were in a fundraiser for many years like I was but like you know part of that is like how do you it's not just the conciseness of the story at times it's also 
the this you want to highlight this parts of your story for this audience, right? Right. So like, and then, if you're talking to a group of ID pharmacists and you have, let's say, 15 minutes, right? You want to highlight the parts of the story for my mom, which was like, wasn't warned about Clenda, was given an anti uh, an anti diarrheal without being tested for C diff when she had diarrhea post antibiotic use. You know, those things are going to stand out and be informative to to this audience, right? Right. If I'm talking to a congressperson, that's too in the weeds for them. Right. You know, like I got to talk about the structural failures. I got to talk about the lack of money for a public education campaign. I have to talk about the need for more surveillance at the state and facility level, right? Right. Because that's what they have control over. Yes. Um, And, you know, if you haven't, you know, if you haven't been doing something like this your whole career, like training people to do that is, takes time and investment, but ultimately it's, it's, I think what's going to make the difference. Yeah, for sure. And I saw that. So the summit looks awesome. I was reading about it on your website. And again, for those who are following along with us, you can go to peggyfoundation.org and they actually have a section on the website for the National C. diff Summit. And you can watch all of the videos from the presentations there online. So you can, even though this was held last April, but you can follow along um, and check out those videos now. They're really compelling. Um, And so Christian, when is the fifth one and how can people be involved? So, um, so the other thing to touch on is that uh, two years ago, we moved the summit to DC because New York and DC are sort of comparably expensive. <laughs> we weren't gaining anything by having it in New York, yeah. uh, except that I didn't have to travel. <laughs> that was the right. only plus. Yeah. Uh, so we moved it to DC and we added um, what is the first and the only, to my knowledge, um, C. diff lobby day. So <clears throat> we, you know, we spend sort of the day of the summit doing education, doing networking, um, doing panel discussions, doing presentations, uh, and ha- some hands-on training. And then the next day, we go up to the hill. Um, and this past year, we um, we had twenty, I'd say twenty-five advocates and some other partners um, who met with uh, who met with forty-eight legislators from eighteen states in a single day. Um, and in many, many instances, the staff person or the member that we talked to, it was the first time anybody had ever come to talk to them about CDEF. Um, so that's something, uh, we don't have a, a, we're looking at the third week of April this year, but we haven't confirmed the dates yet, but it will be in April and that information will totally be available, um, on Peggy, uh, PeggyFoundation.org, uh, probably right after the new year, we'll, we'll start putting out like a save the date. Um, and if people want to be involved, like we definitely want people to attend, um, we'll be reaching out to groups like like SIDPA, um, to help us with the programming, um, to bring experts, um, to meet with and present to the advocates, and then also um, to the extent that people are available to do the lobby day with us as well. Um, So, and then on top of that, what we've also done in addition to putting the videos on YouTube is that um, we live stream the whole event. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're an ID pharmacist or an ID doc and like you want to watch something, um, you can totally watch it while it's happening live. And it also allows us, you know, we have a we have a budget to bring advocates um, from 
their homes to to DC for this event, um, but it's limited. We can't bring 500 people. So, but with the internet, if you're somebody who can't make it or can't be there or can't travel for health reasons, like you can watch along and be part of it. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, you have a couple of social media accounts that I want to make sure to give a shout out to so our listeners can know how and where to be involved and continue to support these efforts. So first, you can follow the Peggy Lillis Foundation on Facebook. It's a nonprofit org and just search Peggy Lillis Foundation. It'll come up as a page you can follow um, on Facebook. And then you guys also have a Twitter account, which is at Peggy Fund, P-E-G-G-Y-F-U-N-D on Twitter. And then any other accounts I'm missing, Christian, that people can be engaged with? Uh, So we also have Instagram. Oh, fun. Which is also at Peggy Fund. Um, And we kind of, we worked a lot on on Instagram. Um, So November is CDF Awareness Month. And so this past November, um, we launched a new uh, public education campaign called CCDF. Um, and so there was a lot of, of stuff that we did on that um, <clears throat> was on Instagram because we were trying to like use more infographics. And then another thing we did is we did a series of, of portraits called um, You Know CDF. And what we did with that was we featured people who are not typically thought of as being at risk for CDF and kind of, uh, and sort of what happened to them. Uh, thankfully, most of them are survivors, um, but also trying to help the average person who may not have heard of CDF to connect with um, this person because the person's a retired police officer and you're a retired police officer. The person is, uh, we had one of the people that we featured was an ID pharmacist <laughs> uh, who got CDF. <laughs> um, Happens you know, to all of us. Yeah, so uh, one of them was a, a, a young uh, a six-year-old girl who had CDF in the course of being treated for leukemia. And thankfully she's, she's health, healthy right now. Um, but so things like that, like we want to sort of make it... Um, real and accessible to people and that campaign will be ongoing and we'll kind of refresh it um every you know every day uh sorry every year in anticipation of cdf awareness month that's awesome yeah i'm actually like scrolling through your instagram account now and i didn't realize you guys had one and it is awesome there's so many awesome pictures on here there's so many so much great content on here so i encourage everyone to follow peggy lillis foundation on twitter on instagram and and stay up to to date with these highlights and the different ways we can get involved and help advocate for this these patient stories are are just so amazing um yeah, this is great content. Sorry, I'm like all distracted now because I'm lost in your Instagram. <laughs> um, so, okay, I have a question for you. I was scrolling through, I was reading and watching your videos from all the stuff you guys did last April for Legislative Day, and we will absolutely stay tuned to hear the announcement for this coming April so we can share with people how they can get involved. But something you guys encouraged advocates to ask their congressman about when um, back in April was this support for the data elemental to health initiative. Can you, I learned about that through reading about your content. Can you kind of explain a little bit about what that initiative is and how it would help us continue to raise awareness and raise public awareness of C. diff and other infections? Yes. So that, um, so this is something that we, like we have long felt like C. diff uh, is underreported and um, and not surveilled properly. And again, that's not uh, that's not to to begrudge the great work of CDC and and the many many sort of academics out there who who are doing their best to to understand this. 
really what it's about and what this uh, this data elemental to health campaign was about is about the fact that over the past uh, 20 to 30 years, we have failed as a country to invest in our public health data infrastructure. Um, so this campaign uh, is a uh, is a coalition, uh, CSTE, the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, the folks at NAFSIS, um, ASTHEM, these are all kind of epidemiology um, and healthcare data organizations. And so they got together um, and then they reached out to us. And so I spoke at like a congressional briefing for them earlier this year. Um, and basically the goal is to get the federal government to appropriate and invest the money necessary to take our public data reporting infrastructure. Well, it would be great to get into the 20th century, but we're hoping to eventually get into the 21st century. Um, and I think, you know, maybe your audience will not be shocked, but I was shocked that, to give you an example, um, that the the awesome Janet Hamilton from CSTE spoke at our summit last year, uh, earlier this year, and um, there are certain departments of public health or departments of health uh, in the country that are doing infectious disease case reporting by handwritten notes and, and sort of forms that are then either mailed or faxed to the health department, which then require transcription into a spreadsheet or a database, and then requires further sort of massaging of the data to give it to the CDC, right? Yeah. So now you're an infectious disease pharmacist. <laughs> you can imagine if you're having, if there's an outbreak happening in a community and the way that, that the Department of Health is receiving case reports from doctors is by fax or they're putting them in the mail, um, how many days are we losing, right? How right. many, and also it sort of prevents us from seeing trends in real time, right? right. I mean, people so, make fun of me that I still carry a pager and I'm like, at least it's a pager, <laughs> at least it's some form of technology. Um, yeah, I actually, my fourth year of pharmacy school where we do our, uh, you know, you like go on rotation and you learn, they're called our advanced practice experiences and we go and learn before we go on to residency. And the hospital I did the majority of my APPE experiences at was on paper charts still. And for stewardship, we would like walk up to the unit and like physically cross off the antibiotic. And it was, I mean, that was actually very satisfying that like motion. Um, but it was all paper. And yeah, if you wanted to change an order or get an antibiotic stat, I mean, you're calling up and, and writing and faxing and scanning and having someone transcribe that into an external CPOE system. So this is, very, I mean, that was, that hospital is now on an electronic health record, but this is very much still many areas of our country. Yeah, and I think it's the kind of thing that it's it's difficult um, for the public to necessarily appreciate uh, what that means, right, and the sort of consequences of that. And what was interesting to me is that when we went to do the lobby day and we were talking, um, for folks who don't know, like, when you go to lobby Congress, like, occasionally you'll meet with a member, but most often you're meeting with staff, Um and the staff who, are, who work for Congress people tend to be very young. Um, and so we would be talking to them and explaining to them how this was done. And they were just gobsmacked, right? 
And they were just stunned because this is a generation that is used to like texting their friends and going live on Instagram. Um, and so what we were saying to them was like, what we want your member to know is like, we now live in a world where we have technology where we can be go, where we can do Instagram live and people can be watching us in France and Brazil and Australia, but we're doing paper copies for infectious disease reporting. So if the technology is there for us to do Instagram live, then certainly the technology is there for us to have a much, ro a much more robust um, and useful uh, data, public health data reporting system. Um, but I do think that it's the kind of thing that, that, you know, it's one thing for infectious disease doctors and pharmacists to go and talk to um, to their their representatives about, but it's another thing for for patients or or consumers or or you know constituents to go, because you know it's a different it's kind of a different story. It's like you know it sounds almost self interested, right? When the CDC talks about the importance of them getting more money, right? But if you know if a congressperson's constituent is like, you know, I had this terrible infection and these infections are not being reported properly and your other constituents could be getting harmed and we wouldn't even know it. That's a much more, I think, compelling case to be made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Christian, we have just a few minutes here. So I want to wrap up this podcast with, with two main things. First, we've talked a lot about the good work you're doing and how people can be involved in some of the upcoming major advocacy campaigns and, and the needs and what things need, what people need to hear um, to support these efforts moving forward. But I, I do want you to touch on very quickly for our audience what some of the challenges are with advocacy because it's not, I mean, if it was easy, we'd all be doing it, right? Um, and so what, what you kind of see is in particular to infectious diseases and why there's not this public call to arms like we may have with, with breast cancer and other foundations that are just, you know, so, so prominent and why ID still has a ways to go and then just public in general. And then after that, I want to end with, you know, what the future looks like for your foundation. So what's the next steps and what is kind of your dream and vision uh, moving forward? So first, if you could walk the audience through just some of the challenges with this. So I think the biggest challenge um, for infectious disease advocacy is, is really organizing the people, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's a complex arena to be doing advocacy in. And one of the challenges that we face is that when people get an infectious disease, there are a few, uh, there are a few things that this isn't true of, but generally an infectious disease is an acute situation, um, by which we mean people either get better or they die. And oftentimes when people recover from an infectious disease, um, we have a culture that kind of says, okay, well, get on with your life. Don't think about it. Get back to work. Get back to your family. Get back to your hobbies. Um, and I think what has made this more more sort of present of mind to us is the fact that, like, we do have this issue of antibiotic resistance and we're running out of antibiotics. So I think there's an increased need for people to realize, like, you recovered from that infectious disease because of these drugs that were sort of beginning to not have anymore. Um, and so we do need people who have survived these diseases to uh, 
you know, to get involved. Um, so, you know, and obviously if you pass away, you're not necessarily going to be there to, <laughs> or you're definitely not going to be there to do advocacy. Um, and so that's the first hurdle is kind of like just the very nature of infectious disease. Like people don't, um, you know, people don't live with, um, with MRSA for 15 years, right? Right. Um, you know, when you look at something like breast cancer or, or uh, prostate cancer, like um, there's also kind of an identity around that, you know, like uh, like mostly women though, there are, are potentially um, some trans men and stuff who, who are at risk for breast cancer and some uh, cis men do also get breast cancer. But generally the idea is like, as a woman, like this is something that you care about, right? You want to check your breast, you want to get a mammogram, and a, you know. So it's kind of on everybody's mind, whereas an infectious disease doesn't happen demographically, right? It right. Can, it's just, you know, wrong place, wrong time, caught it, you know, didn't have a vaccine, whatever. Um, and so there's something about, I think, banning people together who have who share sort of similar interests and similar identities and i think the the most um powerful example of that is the hiv aids movement um which like in the initial crisis in the 80s was happening primarily to middle class and affluent gay white men and so what we know from that is that those people that it was happening to a community that that was centered and we can we can learn from that but we can also then see something like CDF and realize okay well we have to put more effort into organizing people because they don't naturally hang out in the same places <laughs> you know right. they don't uh know each other right and so right. that's a big part of what we've done with our with our summit and our advocates council um and so that's that's you know one obstacle and then I think another obstacle is that um when you have something like uh, like cancer and, and HIV is, is the, the good infectious disease example, you know, you have with HIV a uh, 30 plus year long movement, right? Um, you have huge philanthropies and huge organizations that have been built up over many, many years that now, um, to give you just a very uh, quick example, the National Institutes for Health in 2016 had a budget of $6 billion for HIV. And for C. diff and antimicrobial resistant infections, the budget was around 300 million. So it's quite the discrepancy. It's quite the discrepancy. <laughs> um, and that's because, you know, as HIV became more of a disease that people live with, if they can access the right medications, um, you know, there is a group of people who survive and live with that disease and continue to sort of advocate for it and ensure that that money is there. And so we're trying to build something similar around C. diff and around mm -hmm. um, antibiotic resistant infections. Um, and I think the other part of it is that, um, you know, another thing that's happened culturally is that cancer doctors, um, are used to, like, they meet with patients over time. And I think that, you know, you understand this, that, like, you know, ID docs are not usually, like, a primary care doctor. And so there's, we're just not as connected as people are to oncologists because they see that person regularly and there's, like, a relationship that builds there. Um, so that's another sort of obstacle to it. And then a big obstacle, big obstacle also to it is, is funding. Um, you know, taking people to DC and educating them and doing lobbying costs money. Um, and we have been, you know, lucky and grateful to have 
um, some significant sponsors, uh, you know, support us and support our work. Um, but again, it, it's all relatively new. Right. All right. So what can we do about it then? What's next? What, how are you? <laughs> Cause you're right. I mean, those are significant issues we face. I mean, funding time is huge. I mean, there are so many amazing stewardship pharmacists throughout the country taking care of patients, but they, you can't just like take the day off to go to DC to advocate, right? You have to take care of your patients back at home. And, um, it's hard for people to use their own PTO for these kinds of things. And, you know, it's not, and so, but so what can we do? And then same with infectious diseases for sure. Right. Like we, and, and kind of what you, up to a point you said back at the beginning of the podcast and that people don't, maybe families don't even really fully appreciate that their loved one died of an infectious disease, right? They, it might, they might not even know that to then advocate for it or, or feel sad about it or understand the importance of it. So what's next for Peggy Lillis Foundation and, and how, um, what can we do to move forward? So one of the things that my mother, like a big saying of hers, and it, it came, uh, and I use this a lot when I do public speaking, is that um, when me and my brother, I have a younger brother who helped co-found the foundation. I actually mentioned him earlier. But um, so when me and Liam would fight, uh, she would sit us down and she would make us look at each other. And she would say to us, all you have in this world is each other. Um, someday I'll be gone and you don't have seven other siblings to choose from like I do. You have to love each other and take care of each other even when you're mad and even when it's hard. And in terms of building a disease, a movement around infectious diseases, whether that's C. diff or, or other ones, that is something that I think is incredibly important for us to think about and, and a way for us to approach sort of a mindset is that, you know, all we have in this world is other people, right? So if you survive C. diff, um, maybe it wasn't even a terribly complicated case of it, well, you kind of need to pay it forward. And you know, maybe you're not gonna come to DC, but you can join our mailing list and you can send a, you know, a text or an email to your senator when we ask you to. Um, I think the other part of it is that you know, the same thing for um, ID docs and ID pharmacists is like, you know, putting aside like the challenges of, of getting the day off and being away from your own patients. Like, I think we all just need to make that commitment to work in partnership with each other. Because um, I think that that partnership, as I mentioned earlier, is very powerful, not just for lobbying, but also for public education. Um, you know, like, <clears throat> Like that's something that I think we can all focus on together and understand that like, in addition to the sort of clinical work that you guys are doing, we also need you um, to be our partners in advocacy, right? And similarly, you know, if you know somebody who you didn't treat, but who you know had C. diff, like tell them, hey, you know, there's an organization that works in that disease that you were sort of lucky enough to survive. Many people don't, maybe you wanna get involved with them. Right. right. Um, and then, you know, that does take us sort of towards looking to the future. And so, you know, um, what we're looking to is to continue to grow, to continue to build this movement. Um, we have, you know, when we did our most recent public education campaign uh, called CCDIP, I think I mentioned it earlier, but, um, you know, we have 4,000 social media followers and we would love more of you. So please <laughs> do follow us. Um, but with just that 4,000 social media followers and the help of, of 
groups like yours and our, our sort of grassroots advocates, like we were able over the course of November to reach upwards of 90,000 people. Wow. Um, and to help them to see C. diff and, and we had almost 300,000 impressions, meaning that people saw a message about C. diff over 300,000 times. Um, and, you know, when you think about, you know, having a total of 4,000 online followers, like that's many, many times the number of people that are actively following us. Um, and so we need to do that. And I think we also need the partnership around like going to the federal government or the state government and saying like, hey, what about a PSA for CDF? What about a PSA for antibiotic stewardship, right? Right. Um, and I think that the more that, the more that what look like different uh, groups of people, ID pharmacists, doctors, farmers, patients and survivors are asking for the same things, the more likely we are to get them. And so we are having our next summit um, in April of 2020. Uh, the exact dates will be announced shortly. Um, we definitely want people to get involved with that. Um, if you are a pharmacist or if you're somebody who's not a pharmacist who's listening to this podcast and you have a C. diff story of yourself or a loved one, you can go to our website and share that story with us um, at peggyfoundation.org. You just click on C. diff stories. Um, that's a really easy way to help. Um, and another thing is that um, then over the summer, we will be sort of uh, refining the CC of campaign to relaunch in November. But, you know, all of that information is available every day that people can just go on to our website or our YouTube channel and share that information just to help spread the word. Um, and also something that we're going to be doing next year will be um, developing sort of the next, the next few years vision. Um, we're in the second, we're going to the second year of a two-year strategic plan. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, so we will be thinking through throughout the course of 2020, like, what do we do from 2021 onward? Um, and I think as, you know, for example, seeing things like hospital acquired cases or hospital onset cases diminishing, but more community acquired cases rising, like, that may require us to to think a little differently about how we're approaching our work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for all that you do. Um, I think, I mean, the, the takeaways for me are really that we can't as healthcare professionals just keep talking to ourselves and we need patients and families and members of the community to understand that in fact, even one dose of clindamycin can lead to a life-threatening illness and we all need to be antibiotics aware together and that there is a lot of ways you can be involved, particularly by with C. diff, by helping your foundation, the Peggy Lillis Foundation, um, and really moving forward together. So thank you for sharing your story and your message with our listeners. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. I don't know what else to say. It's been awesome. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for having us. As, uh, you know, as I said when, when we were talking at the World Antimicrobial Congress, like, I think it's really important for, um, you know, not just for your audience to understand the importance of C. diff, but also for our audience to understand the importance of ID pharmacists and the critical role you guys play, um, and to be aware that, you know, that is a key a key person who's trying to help keep us safe. So thank you guys so much for all the work you do um, and for having us on. Thank you. Um, so to all our listeners, this is Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcasts. My name is Erin McCreary, joined today by Christian Lillis. And thank you for listening.